We have to get in touch with our own deep brokenness. We don't know our own stories, which is partially why we perpetuate violence after violence after violence. We need to figure out our own humanity. And we also need to figure out how to be human with one another. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning. Today we're talking with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. As an anti-oppression, anti-racist, non-binary, transgressive Latinx, Robin takes seriously their call as an activist theologian and ethicist to bridge together theories and practices that result in communities responding to pressing social concerns. Today, we'll talk about the energy that animates us, residing in the borderlands, how to show more love to trans folks in our lives, and honor the Trans Day of Remembrance, which is November 20th. Hey, beautiful people. Welcome to the Healing Justice Podcast. My name is Kate Warning, and it is my deep privilege and honor today to be sitting alongside Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. Some of the words on Robin's website, I think, express incredibly beautifully, something that I could not begin to paraphrase, so I want to just share them with you. They say, knowing intimately that the borderlands are a place of learning and growth, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa draws on their identity and heritage as a queer Latinx in everything they do. With a PhD in constructive philosophical theology and ethics, Dr. Robin researches the domains of ethics, ontology, and epistemology for the study of religion and philosophy. They are currently in residence at the Faith Matters Network. Robin is bridging together theories and practices that result in communities responding to pressing social concerns. They see this work as a life-orienting vocation, reimagining our moral horizon to one which privileges a politics of radical difference. So welcome, Robin. Thanks for sitting with me today. It's so good to be here. It's my first time in Brooklyn. Yes. So exciting to welcome you to my collective house. Thank you. um, Here in Brooklyn, New York. And one of the other phrases that was on your website that just totally struck me is this phrase of doing activist theology at the prophetic edge. And I wanted to just ask you, what does that mean? And for those of us, including myself, that have never heard of an activist theologian, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, so it's a great question. And let me just say that, I mean, I make shit up as I go. Sure. And, I mean, really, like, is there such a thing as an activist theologian? Not before I started using the term. So I just started using the term because for me, who, you know, I have three degrees in theology. I've, I, I started this real early in my undergrad. For me, theology became... A purely like a science of thinking, hmm. but but late in my undergrad, and then all throughout graduate school, I started reading liberation theology. Yes, and and then I realized that all of our traditions, all of our religious traditions, have a strain of activism, or what I would call activism, hmm. in it. For me, being trained as a, a Christian social thinker, a Christian theologian, that that tradition privileges the stories and work of, of a brown Palestinian man named Jesus, who in many respects was not only standing up to the empire, the Roman Empire, and then, and then executed by the state, but he was modeling for us a way to be in the streets, what what maybe we would call activism today. <clears throat> so, you know, I want to say it was maybe in 2011 um, when a member of my discernment team, Dr. Sharon Groves, said to me, I think what you're doing is activist theology. Hmm. So she's really responsible for giving me that term. 
And what I have done is I have made really a, just a life commitment to liberating theology and theory from the academy and moving it into the streets because I think the streets is where it's happening. The streets is where we are reimagining what it means to be in the world today. We, we are doing activism in a 21st century, but we are doing it in a way where we are reshaping our theologies and ethics. Mm. And what I mean by that, those are disciplinary terms, certainly. What I mean by that is when we show up in the streets, when I show up in my sleeveless clergy outfit in a pair of shorts <laughs> and my shoes that are now famed for fighting Nazis and my stole that has a resist a black resistance fist and a and a patch that says black lives matter and it's red for protest when i show up that i am not only holding public witness as as a religious person or or as a public theologian but i but i'm saying something about how to be in the world with one another that for me as an academic that to move my theories into the streets is to help generate new contours of relationality with those who are in the streets mm. it's about bonding with people really yeah that's right um so that brings up for me like what are you meaning by the word theology? Because when I think about theology, I think about is some people from the way past, right? It's a bunch of dead white guys that wrote some stuff down that people read now out loud, right? That's true. That's real. Um, <laughs> and when you talk about like changing our relationship to one another, when you talk about bonding, like that to me is totally my experience of activism work and my, com my commitment in showing up there. But I don't know that I've related it before to any particular faith tradition and that a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who relate to the word healing might have never considered that there's any relationship there with the word theology. So I'm curious, what would be like your people's definition of what you mean by theology? So <clears throat> I want to tell you a story because I come from a people who tell stories, right? My people from Oaxaca, Mexico, and they've been on the move for decades and my people tell stories. So I want to just tell you a story. Okay. I was recently in Seattle, Washington at the American Philosophical Association with a whole bunch of white, white men. And I was on a book panel where they had invited theologians to respond to this book, this book of philosophy. And... And the author, who is, is not a theologian and not a philosopher, but is in like comparative lit, the comparative lit literature program, he asked all of us, what does it mean to be a theologian? And for all, for all the people who answered, they were very, very confessional. Like, I do this because I believe in something. Hmm. Um, and I said, theology for me is about harm reduction. It's about helping us reframe our ultimate reality that helps us align our interior life to our social practices. I've read all those dead white guys. Mm -hmm. They, those dead white guys are trying to answer that question of ultimate meaning and ultimate reality. But I think what they miss is their own lived experience and the ways in which, without even knowing, have capitulated to what I call the logic of dominance, which is illustrated in, in the logic of white supremacy. So for me, my work, and I got turned on to feminist theology early in my undergrad and then read a whole bunch of women of color uh, theology and, you know, Latina feminism, mujerista theology, uh, feminism, certainly black feminism, womanism. What I learned there is that <clears throat> in particular, women and women of color, queers of color, 
they're trying to reframe this question of ultimate reality in one that is relational, mm. which to me is about harm reduction, which, which to me is about trying to be human with one another. So for me, theology is deeply tied to ethics, that what we, what we confess about ultimate reality has to be in alignment with our social practices. So for me, theology is ethics and ethics is theology. I come, for, I come to this work from a meta place, from, from philosophy, really. But if it's not grounded in the streets or in the lived reality of those who are pushing shopping carts and humanizing all of us, then, then we are failing to be human with one another. So theology for me, just real plainly, is about harm reduction. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of our folks who are viewing a lot of what's happening in these times, we're seeing words like trauma, having a lot more interest in the mainstream, like people trying to figure out what is it about our personal and collective experience of this moment that is about something so much deeper that needs to accompany needs to accompany the material changes that we need in the streets too, right? right? Like I'm hearing so strongly you walking from a place of of theology having been something that is often a tradition of disconnection from what's happening on the ground and walking that out into public and then also hearing this beautiful critical connection of how is what we're enacting in the world as activists, as people working for change, how is that also married back to our inner life, right? Or um, united with the transformation of our inner life. Um, So I've heard you use this term of social healing a few times, and uh, I've also heard you talk about the concept of healing justice. And I'm not sure if those two things are about the same or if they feel distinct, but I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about what social healing or healing justice means to you. Yeah, so, so in the same respect that theology is about harm reduction. For me, um, doing public theology as a, you know, trans queer Latinx is also about healing justice, which, 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 you know, when we, when we spoke earlier, I, I define theology and healing justice as the energy that animates us, right? That healing you know, we, we, we have all these metaphors about what it means to heal and, you know, we go to the doctor and they provide a type of healing. But when I think about healing justice and when I think about social healing, we, you know, let me just, let me just speak as, as a Latinx right now um, to my white siblings. Um, white folks have been socialized into a sociality that is killing them. And in turn, the relationships that white folks are able to have with people of color are killing us. Mm. And healing justice has to be both about putting each other back together in, in deep ways. Not, not just having a potluck, but but being able to share in a in a dynamic where our energetic levels connect where our being together in the same space moves energy where where we are able to take place with one another i mean social healing and healing justice is is both an individual moment and a social reality. I believe deeply. I mean, part of the reason why I'm a theologian is I so deeply believe in human flourishing and human transformation. Hmm. But we can't get there alone, right? This is why we need collective energetic spaces. This is why we need to figure out how to build home with one another, so that when we are together in a place, our interior life begins to mirror our social practices. So 
healing justice has to happen both on a, in a on an individual level and also on on a social level, on a public level, right? Um, what's happening in the world? Uh, you know, people are very interested in talking about trauma and 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 thinking about oh, maybe we should be doing something about what's happening in the world. That's a great start. And this requires more than just a weekly therapy session. This requires more than um, making sure our cholesterol is in check. Like, we should certainly be doing all of those things. And we are in a current, we are in a current political moment where we are failing to be human with one another. I was just recently in Charlottesville. I was invited in to to be one of the five national faith leaders and public theologians who who was there in Charlottesville and violence is a real thing. And we often have we often have sanitized violence to being that which happens at 2 a.m. Mm. while the rest of us are sleeping. We've not, we've not taken care to understand the insidiousness of violence and the ways in which, in theological language, our liturgy of this culture, our cultural liturgy. Liturgy is a theological term that means work of the people, the people's work has been about creating a culture of violence. That culture of violence, that liturgy of violence, is connected to our public religion, which is white nationalism. So social healing and healing justice has to address that dynamic, what I call a parasitic relationship between white supremacy and Christian supremacy. Mm. We have to address that and we have to figure out we have to figure out how to walk hand in hand with one another and i'm not saying that that it's always going to be a kumbaya moment but we have to get in touch with our own deep brokenness we don't know our own stories which is partially why we perpetuate violence after violence after violence mm-hmm. predatory lending etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so we need to figure out our own humanity and we also need to figure out how to be human with one another. Our, one of our greatest social sins is the failure to be human with one another. And we don't talk enough about social sin. Mm. The ways that we failed each other. So healing justice, it has to be both a relationship between the individual and the public. And I think part of that is figuring out getting in touch with the energy that animates us all. I love that phrasing of the energy that animates, especially because, you know, in in organizing or in responding to injustice, we think a lot about what will animate people or what will agitate folks, what will like get people up and out of their house to do what needs to be done. Right. And I also love your emphasis at the same time on story and recovering our stories. Um, as a white woman, one of the most healing elements for me of, uh, participating in spaces like what you, uh, called on your website, um, spaces of radical difference, um, or being at borderlands and, and bridging with folks from totally different lived experiences than I have. One of the things that, um, has really taken root deeply for me is this uh, increasing awareness of my disconnection from my own story, um, my own history of uh, a, Ger- a German people who came here five generations ago to the United States and uh, through World War One and Two, uh, very intentionally and out of desire to survive, erased a lot about their Germanness to the point where. Now by generation five, I, I don't know any of it. Right. Um, and I can feel within me that sh- the shallowness that mm. that creates, like the sense of trying to make place in the world um, that is built on some, some unstable ground that I have to over effort to make up for. Right. 
because I don't have that sense of lineage, that sense of history, that sense of like, uh, as we'll talk about later, who am I and how do I know? Yeah. Um, and absolutely the way that there is a, a co-liberation project for peoples that under completely different circumstances have all been systematically disconnected from our own stories um, and the stories of the people that we come from. Yeah. Um, which makes me just think about this concept of borderlands. Um, it resonates with me a lot just from having gone and experienced the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border yeah. and felt in my body the shift of what it is to be in a space like that, yeah. being that I'm from the North, I'm from the Midwest. Never had I seen that level of, of overt preparation for violence in my yeah. own life as I did at that place. And so both this sense of like borderlands as a place where there's potential for a lot of beauty and radical difference to meet, but also like in the, in the experience of seeing helicopters and like yeah. all of that guardedness, that over the top uh, militarized guardedness, right? Like there's also potentials at borders for us to really get stuck in our own stuff uh -huh. and really, really harm one another. Yeah. And so I'm curious about what do you think are the conditions that are, needed or like how do we begin to sow the conditions the resiliency the approach what what are the ingredients that we need to approach those borderlands those places where we're connecting across radical difference yeah. um, and have some potential for harm reduction and healing so i think i think we probably should name what the borderlands are right because it the borderlands that the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, which I spent in my childhood crossing back and forth because I spent my summers in Mexico with family. Mm. Um, we need to get clear on what do we mean when we say borderlands? As, as, as a way to get to, then what are the ingredients for social healing? So... Borderlands is a term that was theorized and popularized by queer Chicana feminist Gloria Anzaldúa. And she's a Tejana and, and lived in the Bay Area for many years and, and really is the person for whom, um, for me really, is a person where I get the whole bridging across lines of radical difference. Mm. She, Gloria Anzaldúa, is, is the person who taught us all how to bridge with white folks, in particular white feminists. So she, you know, she's a brown. She was a brown woman. She's she's not. She's passed away. She's a brown woman, queer, who spent a lifetime bridging. And as a trans queer Latinx, a, a, you know, a Tejana person, I feel very much indebted to Gloria Anzaldúa, and that that is also my work. That is my vocation. Mm -hmm. So Borderlands for Gloria was spiritual, was psychic, was bodily, was national, was um, emotional, was was um, intellectual, psychological, etc. Borderlands are just proliferating. There are so many. So <clears throat> when we think about some of the ingredients for healing justice and so in social transformation or social healing. And, and if we are going to use the analogy of the borderlands, what we, what we also need to realize is that borderlands and we can use, we can use the U S Mexico, Texas um, borderland it, it's a wound that never heals. Mm. There's always a rupture. So as we think about healing justice, we need to bear in mind the ways in which ongoing rupture happens. Borderlands are never settled. But borderlands are rich for generativity. And so... The U.S.-Texas-Mexico border, it will scab over and then rupture again. And the violence that happens at that border, 
the ways in which surveillance manages my body when I cross back and forth as a trans person. Um, I'm always aware of the potential of rupture and the hope for scabbing. I think healing justice relative to borderlands, um, there's a relationship between wounding and scarring. We need to figure out how to participate in helping us all scar together so that we are not re-hemorrhaging our wounds mm. and speaking from our wounds. Mm. Because when we speak from our wounds, we perpetuate the same violence that is done against us. So we need to figure out how we participate in our, in our own harm reduction and in, 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 in one of the ways I think is like getting in touch with our own story and also hearing the stories of others so that we can, so that we can practice being human differently. Mm. I think though, I think that is a main ingredient in reducing the harm and also, and also privileging, privileging sort of social practice of difference making. And, and I think Borderlands helps us do that, right? Like, what do we do when, when a bunch of us get into a room where we look different, our melanin is different, our cultural orientation is different, our eating habits are different, right? How do we hold space for that radical difference? Well, I think one way we do that is, is we learn to be human with one another in that, right? We... We invite one another to tell their own story in a way that animates their own difference. And then, and then we refuse the sort of the logic of normalizing that difference. We just let that difference stand. That's modeling a different type of relationality. And quite honestly... That's that's a move into revolutionary love. You know, we we don't know how to be human with one another, and therefore we don't know how to love each other. Hmm. I'm impacted by the phrase of let that difference stand, because I think speaking as a, a white woman with a lot of feelings sure, uh, and working alongside many white women that are, that are deeply troubled, saddened, grieved, motivated to act by the harm that we're seeing perpetuated against so many communities, especially people of color. And feeling this inner desire of like wanting total reunification, total, um, yeah, like a total unifying in a way that I think that desire often takes up a lot of space. Yeah. Um, that gets into some dicey relationship with the fact that what would it look like for us to let that difference stand? And also what would it look like for us to accept it before when you were talking about um, wounding and scarring to really reckon with the history that we've been born into and now participate in the legacy of right. every day that actually has not created the conditions for a wound to heal completely like new. Right. Um, the history has been too much, too long, too deep, yep. and that there is potential for healing, but that, that that dream might look closer to the language of harm reduction or might look closer to the language of scarring. Yeah. And what would it look like for us to reckon with that a little bit, right? That it's not, we're not getting back to something that, that, that could have been right and perfect from yeah. the beginning, right? Um, and that's a, that makes a shift for me and what I feel like the yearning of my heart is like, how can we repair all of this um, to what it could have been and what it should have been to hold the dignity of all human beings mm -hmm. um, and reckoning with some of that grief of like a, a lot of the potential for that has been lost. Yeah, I mean, I think I think. Um... To, to sort of think theologically with you for a minute. We don't know how to lament anymore. 
What is our social lament right now? The state is systematically executing black and brown bodies and trans bodies. I am, I am trolled by the alt-right. I was followed by a white supremacist in Oakland. What is our social lament? I mean, safety is, a, safety is an illusion of whiteness. I get that. And we have created, we have created a humanity and an orientation of humanness that results in people of color, trans people, trans people of color in particular, having a boot on their neck every day. It's not going to be fixed overnight. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be fixed by one person. <clears throat> there will always be ripples. And instead, I mean, if I could just talk to my white siblings, instead of white folks wanting to fix it and wanting it to be perfect, because that is about a culture of whiteness. If white folks can figure out a way to be non-attached to their fragility and lean in to a radical orientation of vulnerability to lament with my people and my black siblings and my trans siblings, we might be able to reshape our relationality. Mm. But that is about that is about building that is about building a bridge across lines of deep difference, radical difference. That is not modeled to us in media or in the church or in society, right? I mean, it's in many respects, you know, we are drawing on our ancestors' vision. And it looks different now, right? Than what they imagined. But we have to we have to be able to hold in tension both our responsibility to our people and to ourselves and and figure out for white folks how to be non-attached to the fragility and to all the feelings. Like I get that Brene Brown just came out with a new book that is not that is not your gospel. <laughs> I mean, it only goes so far. And also let me just say like th- that that culture around Brene Brown is is participating in neoliberal capitalism of commodifying this work. That is the logic of empire. She helps she helps white people feel. Mm-hmm. I'm glad. Mm-hmm. And people of color have been doing this work for years. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do we how do we hold that reality and participate in a new contour of generative relationality that that will actually get us to collective liberation. Mm. I don't have time to sit down and talk about everybody's feelings. My people are dying, literally. Mm-hmm. I am not safe in the world. My safety diminishes <laughs> day by day. We have to figure out a new orientation to humanity. Otherwise... The boot that is on my neck and that will soon be on yours will suffocate us both. So I appreciate you bringing up the reality of the lack of safety in the most extreme sense. And I know that you're coming back to New York, which is great news for us who live here. Um, But to really honor and recognize the Trans Day of Remembrance on November 20th. And wanted to just talk to you a little bit about your experience uh, of at the, at the borderlands of working with trans folks and queer folks and people who may not identify as trans or queer but are really wanting to inquire about the work that we need to do to show up um, in the most uh, in the way that most promotes healing justice for our trans siblings. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about? 
your experience or what advice you might give to folks who want to, uh, who want to love trans folks better? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we need more loving in this world, right? So, you know, I identify as a non-binary trans queer Latinx, which means that I disidentify with the gender binary and I'm in touch with both masculinity and femininity. I'm a, I'm a masculine of center presenting person. And, and, you know, for me, I've decided to, to not engage in the medicalization of what it means to be trans. That is my decision and mine alone. Um, and so, you know, the history of trans liberation has, has been on a journey. And, and, and I, you know, I've been open about this and, and public about this, that, that we need to address, um, and this is gets at your question of love, but we need to address the ways in which we fetishize masculinity in our community and the ways in which we demonize femininity. And the ways in which, you know, F to M is more prized in our community. Mm, female to male. Female to male. Mm -hmm. Than male to female. Mm. And we need to talk about how toxic masculinity is killing trans women of color in particular. I've been very open about this. Wrote a piece on Huffington Post about this that went viral. You can find it on 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 my author page. Um, trans people need to be loved, and we have to figure out how to build an equitable gender relationship with ourselves and with one another. Hmm. So some of the work that I've been doing with trans people, and 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 this is not uncontested, right? Like, I know people will have opinions about this. But we live in a world with deep, deep misogyny. I've been talking with trans men about their own internalized misogyny. We need to figure out how to love ourselves. Hmm. When it comes to... Trans women, we, we need to figure out a different way to, to honor that journey instead of demonizing femininity. Because that's also about misogyny. Mm -hmm. And it's also about a bad politics of masculinity. Um... I mean, I could say a lot about this, but, you know, trans liberation is a deep struggle in this country and globally. And our gender politics are caught up in enlightenment thinking where we have to categorize into a binary. And for 40 years, really, 41, I just turned 41, for 41 years, I have never felt connected to either either box, male or female, mm -hmm. but didn't have the language. And, and it was only until I got to seminary in Chicago where I learned the language of gender fuck and gender fluid and gender nonconforming. But our language is limiting around these things. And for trans people who I think it's a matter of spirit or something for trans people they are trying to create a new language for themselves when it comes to gender but our but the language that is available to us is the hegemonic structure of the binary so trans folks are on a journey we are all on a journey mm -hmm. we are we are all trying to deal with cis sexism and cis privilege. And, 
in trans liberation, learning to love ourselves and our trans siblings and one another is in part having an imagination around language and having an imagination around bodies and realizing that bodies are always becoming, hmm. that language often stabilizes us, but bodies are always becoming. So I am still on a journey in my non-binariness. I mean, I feel real invested in the dapper aesthetic, but I am still on a journey. And, and I think part of trans liberation is inviting folks and encouraging trans folks to, to stay on the journey and partner with them, accompany them on the journey. Mm. We're all figuring out our bodies in the 21st century. Straight women are trying to get free too, yeah. you know? Yeah. We're all on a journey. And trans liberation right now in this moment is figure I think but part of it is figuring out how to address the overwhelming toxic masculinity and and the silencing and the violence against trans people in particular trans women of color and helping us all lean into the possibility of what gender could be. I think that's where we are in this movement moment. I love this phrase of that bodies are always becoming because that is just so universally undeniable, right? It's like to take, I think sometimes folks, including myself, can get a little stuck in like, well, specifically around gender presentation or gender identity you know, what are the words I'm supposed to be using? So maybe even if we're moving past the binary saying there's two options, well now like what are the new boxes and exactly how many are there and what are the words I should be using now, right? right. And that that, I think the, 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 the whiplash that we feel with that naming work is uh, very much in relationship to like trying to build boxes or, ter- or terminology to slap onto something that's always growing and changing every day. And I mean, I just turned 30. My relationship to my body, although my identity hasn't changed dramatically now, is completely different than what my relationship to my body was 10 years ago. Yeah. The way I see and perceive myself, the way I feel in my body, and all of that could change next month. Yeah. Um, all of that changes at whatever moment I'm at in my cycle, right? right. Like all of this stuff is changing. I think we see that reflected in nature, in yep. the earth. Um but let's but let, let's remember because I think this is important. the The impulse to always have to recognize something is 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 a tentacle of white supremacy. So the fact that for someone who was born female and did not feel female, whose only option was to become male, is is about the politics of recognition. Mm-hmm. If we are not recognized in this world, then that does all sorts of things to us mm-hmm. because we've been socialized into categories. And that gives us meaning and value and whatnot. I, that's harmful, right? And I think we're in a, we're in a, over the past 20 years or so, as gender nonconforming has become a thing, we, I think we all have, we've all had to stretch ourselves, right? Participate in the elasticity of imagination. And let's remember that spirit is matter stretched thin. So this imagination that we have around gender I want us to be less focused on whether we recognize someone as male or female. Mm-hmm. Because if we can get away from that, if we can decenter that, which is about, you know, recognizability, what's what fits in, you know, respectability, whatnot, that's all caught up in whiteness. If we can decenter that and just let people be free 
just let people be free, then we will be participating in a, in a new humanity where we might even be able to step into community with one another. Mm-hmm. And that's about getting free. Mm-hmm. That's about all of us getting free. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I love that invitation around not, like, noticing an impulse to need to understand something by applying a category that we already know, and then to let that go. Just notice the impulse, let it go. And I think um, one of the practices, just in terms of, like, uh, in the day-to-day, like, a very concrete thing that's been um, really important for me is to get better at listening to the language that people are using to describe themselves, which certainly falls along the lines of gender, also along racial lines, around class background, around everything, like, just to listen and to ask folks how... How would you like to be referred to, right? And to respect one another. And I think that um, that sometimes in this quest to like figure out what is the new right language, yeah, it can become very legalistic, yeah, in the sense that like, do we really need to create new rules, or can the rule just be to ask somebody and honor what they're asking yep. for, right? Um, there is a resource that we'll share in the show notes that is really useful too, because we need to also hold intention the fact that one thing that as a, a cisgendered person, um, somebody who feels aligned with uh, the physical presentation that I was born into as a female, um, one thing that I can do is also to try to learn about some of the terminology that makes folks feel respected and kind of what's going on in that in that linguistic world as well. And so we'll share in the show notes this resource that's really great uh, from the radical copy editor, editor Alex Capitan, about um, how to write about trans folks and thinking about using correct pronouns and how we might do those things and, and learn along those edges for folks who aren't used to that language to be able to respect people by reflecting back the way that they uh, deserve to be referred to. Right. right? Um, but I love this. I love this invitation around complexifying that kind of categorization or um, formalizing of the way in which we relate to one another. Well, let's, let's remember language is a colonial tool. Hmm. Let's let's decolonize our language so that we can stop colonizing bodies. I mean that will that will help in transliberation. Decolonizing our language. So I want to ask you um there's so much more that I wish we had time to talk about yeah. here. Um but I do want to ask you for folks who have been uh just moved by your story moved by uh, your reclamation of theology in the streets yeah, um, and theology in, in communing with the energy that animates us. Yeah. Um, how might we continue in relationship with you? Yeah, so I am certainly online, and there is a contact feature on my website, so you can be in touch that way. I am on social media, on uh, Twitter, at irobin, that's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N, and really active on Twitter, super active also on Facebook. I have, you know, um, a friend page, which I'm running out of spaces there, so I have a public page, and you can connect with me there. Um, and, you know, Faith Matters Network, where I am uh, the public theologian, we, we are always on the road, so... Um, I will say that I, I do spend significant time in New York with Chosen Family. Um, I'll be in the Bay Area for two months finishing my manuscript. So if you're listening and if you're in the Bay Area, I will be in the Bay Area for October and November. And, you know, maybe we can have a cup of coffee or drink a beer or something or go for a walk. Um, but I'm super accessible. You know, I'm, I believe I believe in... Um, being in conversation, right? What my people say, in conjunto, right? Somos en conjunto. We are together. I believe in practicing a togetherness to help move our movement. And I felt that very personally by the fact that you've showed up here today to the Collective House in Brooklyn, New York. Yes. Um, and I'm excited for the practice that you're going to share with us for folks who want to uh, try on a new practice with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. 
Um, I experienced the uh, your leadership in sharing this practice with us this past weekend up at a retreat center and uh, was really moved by the invitation to write, which isn't necessarily something I do often, or if I do, tends to be just sort of like a stream of thought journaling, stream right. of consciousness, uh, and to be invited around a very specific question. So if you go to the next recording, you can find the practice with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. You're going to want to grab a journal or a piece of paper, a pen, uh, find a place to sit and to block off about 15 minutes of time. So any little teaser you want to give about why folks might want to join us in this practice? Yeah, I mean, we need to figure out how to be connected to ourselves. And we live in a world that perpetually fragments us. You know, I mean, I'm on the road all the time, right? I, I live on a Southwest airplane, who I adore, by the way. I love Southwest Airlines. No change fees. What up? That's right. Free bags, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I have to carry my clothes. I have to look good. So I always take a big bag and Clearly. they're always checking my bag for me. This podcast is sponsored by Southwest Airlines. <laughs> yes. Just saying. So, so um. I'm always on the road. I'm very busy. I have many writing deadlines. And I need to get connected with myself. And that's about integration of heart, mind, and body. And for me, these 10 or 15 minutes where I just sit down, I put my phone on, do not disturb, and I'm just with myself. I think we all need to take time for that. Mm. Well, thank you. I look forward to us sharing this practice again together. Um, and thank you so much for making the journey to be with us today. It was so good to be here. Thanks so much. You just heard a conversation between Kate Warning and Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. Download the corresponding journaling practice to try it on at home. If you're in New York City, on November 19th, Robin will join the 9.30 and 11.45 a.m. worship services at Middle Collegiate Church as part of the celebration of Trans Awareness Week. They will preach a sermon called, And God Hovered Over the Face of the Deep, Transgressing Gender. Come join me in hearing Robin speak if you can make it. You can access the resources referenced in this conversation, learn more about upcoming episodes, and sign up to stay in touch at healingjustice.org. Follow us on Instagram at healingjustice. This podcast is generously mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Cole Room. Intro and closing music gifted by Danny O'Brien. Our team is 100% volunteer and we are spending our own money to cover the tech costs. So if you are in a position to chip in, please join us by contributing at patreon.com slash healingjustice. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review in iTunes to help us continue. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week. <laughs>